we're, we're going to finish talking about the angel of the Lord today. So we talked about him last week a little bit. Uh, we'll continue on that again as we look uh, on the angel of the Lord. And we're going to do part two of this today. Uh, as we have one more week in this series on bloodlines and battles. So we're down here, the angel of the Lord, the second one. We did some of this last week. So we're going to kind of take up from there this week. So here's our objectives. You'll see these four things in your outline. Number one, the angel of the Lord calls himself the great I am. So there's no confusion who that is. He is the leader as they go through the exodus to leave Egypt. And then as they go through the conquest. And we're going to see that, how he's directly involved with all of those things. And then we'll look at an interesting thing of what is his name. So that's what we're going to start with up here with he is the great I am. And a brief review from last week. Last week, all we did was go through the book of Genesis. Um, and we looked at this character, the angel of the Lord, and we did this little logical thought process, A equals B equals C to D, E, F, G, and H. It's amazing going in chronological order with these. What might H be? Well, it has to be A, as well as any other letter in there. And so here's the chronological appearance and the labels of the angel of the Lord. This is just a recap from last week. He's the angel of the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is Elohim. He's the angel of God. He is a man. He is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the creator of the angels, but distinct from the angels. He's not a regular angel. And then he's El Shaddai, and he is a Goel. He's a redeemer, which lays the foundation for understanding all of redemption through the rest of Scripture, where it's got to be a blood relative to have total redemption, because blood of bulls and goats is temporary. So that is the brief recap of the angel of the Lord. And of course, he had to be made like his brethren, Hebrews 2. Why? So that, everything has a reason, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to make satisfactory payment in full. He's the only one able to pay that bill, but he had to take on humanity in order to do that. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So, That's a brief recap, and of course he took on flesh and blood in the bloodline of Adam. And so that's a recap of what we did last week, looking at the angel of the Lord. Now we're going to pick it up in Exodus, where we see the flaming bush that doesn't get consumed. So we see again, here it is, the angel of the Lord. He appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Where is the angel of the Lord? In the midst of a bush. Okay, so keep that in mind. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Yahweh and Elohim are where? In the midst of that same bush, which is where the angel of the Lord is. They're all one and the same. Then he said, do not come near here, Moses. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. You are in the presence of Yahweh Elohim, the angel of the Lord. And Moses does. This is going to come into play later as well with the angel of the Lord. Where he is, is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
I am Elohim, 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 Elohim. You cannot be confused who this being is. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at Elohim. And of course, you can't see him in the full glory. You wouldn't survive. So he goes on. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. They're enslaved and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land that is good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So we are going to leave Egypt and go on our exodus up to the promised land. And this is Yahweh. So you see Elohim and Yahweh and the angel of the Lord are used interchangeably. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. Time has no bearing to me. It doesn't control, doesn't affect me. I'm outside of time. I created time, continually self-existing. And I am in a state of self-sufficient existence. There's no other being that is self-sufficient. Try to find something that is not dependent on something external to self. Only God is a I am. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, my memorial name to all generations. So number one in your notes, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh Elohim, who calls himself, I am who I am. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh Elohim, who calls himself, I am who I am. It's amazing how people try to reduce the role of Christ when they look through Scripture. So now we're going to go through Moses as he starts leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the Lord, Yahweh, was going before them. And you might say, well, how was he going before them? He is the pillar, the cloud, right? So he is the pillar in the cloud of fire uh, by day or by night and the pillar of cloud by day. So it's the angel of the Lord who is in this. The angel of God, there he is, angel of the Lord, angel of God, interchangeable, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and now stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Remember Egypt, the Pharaoh is furious with the Israelites. He's gone out with great fury with his chariots. He's going out to kill them. And there was the cloud along with darkness, and that happens again at Sinai when he gives the commandments. It gave light at night, the one did not come near the other all night. So Pharaoh, the best army in the world, has fear. He will not go into this darkness and this cloud that has fire all in the same place. Number two, the angel of God stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And when you look at that, they're screwed militarily because there's a little conduit where you can walk through and there's a large beachhead. If you're at the men's breakfast a few weeks ago, you saw that right before the area where they crossed the Red Sea. There's nowhere for them to go. They're trapped. But the angel of the Lord stands between the two groups. As the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He's there in the midst of this cloud. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting them, fighting for them against the Egyptians. Whenever Moses entered the tent, this is later on in 
Exodus. This pillar of the cloud and this glory will come down and manifest as the Lord, as Yahweh speaks with Moses over and over and over in Exodus. That is Yahweh. So that's just to see who I am, and the angel of the Lord equates himself with I am. So now we're going to see how this angel of the Lord is the leader of the Exodus. So Moses, of course, takes the Israelites through the Red Sea, and then behold, I, God, am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you into the place, the promised land, which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him. He will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. So, you might say, okay, God says he's going to send an angel. So there's an angel, and then there's the angel of the Lord. And how do you know? You have to use context, and sometimes the text will just make it clear. What does this angel do? He guards, and he has the right to pardon. And he says he won't pardon your sins here. This is a very interesting time. But wait a minute, to pardon transgression and sin, let's go to the New Testament, Jesus speaking, so that you may know that me, the Son of Man, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And the Pharisees and Sadducees knew that was blasphemy. That is a claim to be God. Only God can forgive sin. But this is an angel who has the ability to pardon sin. That's no ordinary created angel. And, of course, it's the same as the Son of Man. It's just a pre-incarnate manifestation of him. Number three, only God is able to pardon sin. So we go on. My name, God says, is in him. So it's an angel, but this angel can pardon or not. My name is in him. He is the same as me, just like I and my Father are one. And here we see very clearly, for my angel will go with you. It's an angel, but the text clearly tells you in the next verse, it is my angel, the angel of the Lord will go before you. will bring you into this land of the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You notice they go in and they kill men, women, children, infants. There's multiple times of that that really throws people for a loop until we understand God's sovereignty. Now we have, in Exodus 32, the golden calf. We're not going to get into that too much. We're just kind of going through history because what we're doing, like last week, we looked through Genesis where the angel of the Lord pings in. That's what we're doing is just following the angel of the Lord. But as we watch Israel, now they go through the golden calf. That was 32. So now we're in Exodus 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here to the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will, I, God, will give this land to you sovereignly. This is Yahweh speaking to Moses. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Now we're in Exodus 33. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Moses caught? It is now an angel. That's very interesting. And here's the context. You just screwed around with the golden calf. You just rejected the angel of the Lord specifically. I will send an angel, but I will not go. God is now changing what he told them. I will not go up in your midst. Why? Because you're an obstinate people and I might well destroy you on the way. So God had promised 
his presence, the angel of the Lord, but now because of the golden calf, that is retracted and replaced with an angel. And Moses catches it, and the people did too. The people heard this sad word. They went into mourning. None of them put on his ornaments. It is removed now from the angel of the Lord to an angel in Exodus 33. Number four, after the golden calf event, God said he would no longer lead Israel into the promised land. That's kind of a bad, rough day. Moses is astute. He catches it. How does Moses know? He's had the burning bush. He's seen the angel Lord. He's communicated with Yahweh. He's had this pillar and cloud. He has had multiple. Jacob had about eight theophanies. Moses has way more when you look at him. So he knows who the angel of the Lord is. He does not want a created being to lead them. Even if it's Michael, he wants Yahweh Elohim as the angel Lord. He understands the difference. And God told Moses, step away two different times. I am going to destroy all of these Israelites. And he could still follow his promise to Abraham because Moses is descended from Abraham. And I will make of you, Moses, a new nation. Give you glory. Both times, Moses says, it's not for me and my glory, but Lord, it's your glory and what the other nations see. He is humble. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you are one of my favorites. Yes, God has favorites. Multiple times. Mary is one. He does not show favoritism. He won't get you off the hook for something because you're a favorite, but he listens to some people more than others. Moses is a clear example of that. You have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, Moses said, I pray to you, if I really have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. I've already found favor, but I want you to teach me your ways so I can double down, get a positive feedback loop, and get more and more and more favor. And consider, too, that this people is yours. So now God listens to Moses. He said, okay, my presence, my intimate manifest presence, that is the angel of the Lord, will now go with you. I had retracted it, but now I am giving it again. And Moses said to God, if your presence, he doubles down. God just said, okay, I'll do it. But Moses says, we're going to make sure this is certain. Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. How then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the others upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will. I had retracted the angel of the Lord, but now we're going to do that again. I will do this thing which you have spoken. Why? Here you see it again. You have found favor in my sight, and I have known you intimately by name. Number five. Moses was able to get God to recommit to sending his presence to lead the conquest. He was able to get God to recommit to sending his presence to lead the conquest. But now go, lead these people, and my angel. So this is 32. It's before. So it was going to be my angel. It got retracted to an angel, and now it's reinstalled again. My angel will go. But only after Moses prays with humility of self, and the glory of God, much like Hezekiah's prayer. So we say, what really happened at the golden calf? They were talking to Aaron, make a God for us who will go before us. Make a little G God. 
Notice these guys have already experienced the angel of the Lord, Yahweh Elohim, manifest. They have already seen that glory. Moses now up 40 days and 40 nights. They are rejecting the angel of the Lord, and they are wanting a God that we can make, that we control, that we will give a name, we will control it. That's syncretism, just like the Egyptians, but it's far more. It's the rejection of the angel of the Lord, the rejection of Christ and wanting something they control. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis and Narnia, and the girls, Susan and Lucy, are talking to the beaver, and they're saying, well, what about Aslan as a lion? Is he safe? Oh, no. He is not safe. He is not a safe God. You have to be under him. If you are not, you are not safe. He is not safe. He is not a tame lion. But he is king, and he is good. He is independent. He exists over here. You better line up. If not, do not think for a minute. You have safety. That's C.S. Lewis does a great job of explaining that. So now we get to the conquest, but a key component is understanding the angel of the Lord, Yahweh Elohim, manifest, and he'll appear as a man several times. He is the leader for the exodus. He is also the direct leader of the conquest. And so we're taking big picture here. We're not going into detail, but we'll go through it. starts with Abraham back in uh, Genesis with the promise he has. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They're going to go down to Egypt, and there they will be enslaved. That is not the land I have given them sovereignly. They're going to be slaves there 400 years. So that's talking to Abraham 400 years before they get into the promised land. But I will judge that nation, which is Egypt, whom they serve. Afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at old age, 175. Then in the fourth generation, your descendants will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So here you see the iniquity of the Amorite. God is sovereign. He determines on his scale when it's been enough. We have no idea how to measure that, but it takes another 400 years for these sinful people to be enough before God exterminates them. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Rephium, the Amorite, the Canaanite, Girgashite, and the Jebusite, all these ites. Here's another one. Did you catch that? Did anyone catch that, what this really means? Oh, there we go. The ites are people groups. Rephaim is not a people group. That's a type of being. That is the Nephilim. That is the Rephaim. That is the Anakites. That is the Zamzumim. That is the Emim. Those are the giants. When you study the Nephilim, we did a series on this several years ago, more than half the books of the Bible relate to the Nephilim. Whoa. You might have thought it was only a few passages. It's not. It's deep. Here's one. God promises to Abraham 400 years before the conquest. Your descendants are going to polish off the Rephaim, among other people. The Amorites. The Amorites. Who are the two big kings of the Amorites? They're in the Psalms all over. You just, who are they? Og and Sihon, right? So Og, his sarcophagus is about 13 and a half long. Uh, six wide feet. That's a big dude, right? That's what he's buried in. They kept it for decades. You could see it where the sons of Ammon were. So Sihon and Og, once you understand, they are 
Nephilim, they are Rephium. The Amorites are not all giants, but they contain giants. Rephium are all giants. So Sihon and Og are giants, and they're two of the first kings that the angel of the Lord leads them, and they exterminate. And there it's every man, woman, child, even kids, that the angel of the Lord exterminates. Number six, God promised Abraham that his descendants would eliminate the Rephaim. If you don't understand what this is, and we're not going to go deep into it, but understanding the Nephilim helps you understand so much of Scripture. We look at statements of a sovereign God. So that's my purpose of this class, is looking at God's sovereignty. God makes sovereign statements. So what does Satan do? He wants to be the great I am, but he's not. So he tries to knock any statement God makes flat. So God makes a massive promise to Abraham that has two pillars. One will be your descendants will bless all the nations of the earth, not just the Jews, and that means the Messiah. So there's going to be a bloodline from Abraham to David that's all about the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, and that is the bloodline. That is pillar number one of this promise. Pillar number two is the land, the promised land. And I've just highlighted for you five areas dominated by Nephilim. And you notice that is a defensive network. They're going to come around Egypt, come up through here and go. Satan also heard the promise to God. He has 400 years to prepare a defensive network. What the Nephilim are, and it would have worked to to eliminate the Messiah by the bloodline. It's a pollution of the bloodline. Outside of King Joash, there's a time where there's down to one again. That's a story for a different day. Satan almost gets it. If he would have polluted the bloodline, you can't have a Messiah. If he kills the bloodline, you can't have a Messiah. But you notice he never quite makes it. And then if he defends the turf, because he had 400 years to set a defensive barrier, now we see what Satan is doing. The Nephilim is a direct assault on the two pillars of the promise of God, the bloodline and the lamb, and the land. Those two promises are exactly what Satan uses the Nephilim to attack. The conquest is the final eradication of several things, but it includes the Nephilim. Number seven, God promised Abraham the land and the bloodline to the Messiah. And so we don't have time to go into all that because we're focusing on the angel of the Lord, but we realize it's the angel of the Lord who interacts with men who have to deal with these Nephilim. We go to Amos, yet it is I, the Lord speaking, it is I who destroyed the Amorite, Sihon, and Og before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars, he was strong as the oaks. I, God, it wasn't you, it was I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. He's talking about these two Amorite kings, and notice he mentions their height. That's all through Scripture. Thus they were big dudes. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorites. I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares Yahweh. As the angel of the Lord, it was me exterminating these people. Yes, you're doing it, but I'm killing a lot of them myself as well. So we think this question, who is hunting who? Joshua and Caleb understand this. In Numbers 14, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those whose 12 dudes went to spy out the land, only two understand Yahweh, and it's Joshua and Caleb. They tore their clothes because the 10 guys said, we can't go. Joshua and Caleb said, we can. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. 
If, there's an if-then statement here, if the Lord is pleased with us, then the Lord, Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear those people, even though they're big. Don't fear them. They will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Very small percentage of people are true champions. They will be our prey. Why? Their protection. Remember God speaking to Abraham 400 years ago? The sin of the Amorite has not yet reached its full measure. They have divine protection. The Lord's anointed, just like David would not raise his hand against Saul. It is not time to take out the Amorites yet. Now, 400 years later, it is time to take them out. God sovereignly decides that. But all the congregation said to stone Joshua and Caleb with stones. Then... It's interesting to stop and pause and think what is happening. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And they don't stone Joshua and Caleb. Now we're not, we're just looking at the angel of the Lord here. The conquest, it was time. Joshua and Caleb knew it. God has sovereignly removed his protection. It's time to exterminate. But they didn't go and they were going to kill him. And so God says, now it's off. It's going to be 40 years of wandering. So the Israelites said, okay, the next day they gathered up dudes and they went and attacked, but Moses didn't go, the ark didn't go, God did not go with them, and they got their rear ends kicked and scattered back. He said, why are you trying to do this without me? It's me, it's not you. Number eight, true leaders understand that God sovereignly controls when and where people live and die. That concept is right through Scripture, but we really see it in the conquest. So as you look at the angel of the Lord, several things as he fights hornets. There's several times where they are, you cannot fight hand-to-hand combat when you are being stung by a bunch of hornets and your opponent isn't. Hailstones that supernaturally only hit one element of the army. Remember, these guys are fighting hand-to-hand. That's a big gamish of people. How do the hailstones only hit some? That's amazing. There's the long day of Joshua. There's earthquakes. There's terror given by God to people. And then there's mental confusion. And then walls fall down more than just Jericho. These are amazing things when the angel of the Lord fights for you. So we look at the battle of Jericho. And are you, we talked about this. Are you serious? You got to do this again? Circumcision? What? For Moses had something with circumcision. Forty years in the desert, they didn't do it. Remember, he didn't circumcise his kid. It almost cost him his life. Something with Moses and circumcision. But now, 40 years, you've not been doing circumcision. As you come across the Jordan, Moses does not. So now it's going to be Joshua in charge. You've got to circumcise everybody. Remember Shechem? You can't fight very good when you're just recently circumcised. As a 40-year-old man, a 20-year-old man, a 25-year-old man. You're not going to wield your sword well. It doesn't matter that they Jericho is just finishing their harvest. You know, Rahab had the stuff on her roof. Why do you ever set siege after harvest? That's stupid. Everyone knows you go in before harvest, so you take the harvest and they don't get the food. Everyone knows that. But the angel of the Lord is going to give the commands and the strategy to Joshua, and it is going to be stupid on every account. I'm testing to see, will you follow me or your military commanders? You're going to delay. You're going to have a wait period here because you've got to circumcise. Then you've got to heal. 
That's every day is critical as they're gathering their crops and putting them into Jericho. And then you're going to delay further and celebrate Passover. And then you're going to do it right. You're going to be consecrated and you're going to go because it's me fighting for you. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho. This is in Joshua 5 through Joshua 6. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite. Uh Uh-oh, but his sword is drawn. Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said... No. What kind of a, let's look at this again. I asked you a question, a binary question. Are you for us, A, or B, for our adversaries? No is not an appropriate answer to that question. No, but rather, so you will see Jesus Christ does this multiple times. He will correct an error in the premise of a question. He does that with the Pharisees and Sadducees all the time. Have you not read? He will not answer a question with a false premise. He corrects the premise behind the question. Joshua has a false premise. You are, there's something special about you. You've got to be for us or for them. No. I am. I self-exist. I am here. I am eternal. I am truth. I do not move. I do not waver. The question is not where I am. The question is where you choose to be. Are you going to be under me, or are you going to not? The question is on you. That's a false premise to think the question relates to me. Rather, it is not for us or for our adversaries, but I come as captain of the host of the Lord. The angels, I am not an angel. I am the commander of the angels. We lurked last week. I am the Yahweh Elohim, the creator of the angels, not one of them. But he appears as a man. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to a servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Just like he said to Moses, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Joshua did so. Bow down seems redundant because he fell to his face in fear and awe. But then this, some translations just say worship. He's doing two things. A, fell down. B, bowing in worship. Actively worshiping this being. And this being says, you are on holy ground. You notice he accepts the worship. He accepts the worship and he enforces it. Take off your shoes as well. Don't simply bow. Take off your sandals. Number nine. The man that appeared to Joshua not only accepted worship, but he also enforced it. The man, the commander of the angels, appeared to Joshua and not only accepted worship, but also enforced it. That's a fascinating concept, because let's go to Colossians. Do not worship angels. Let's go to Revelation. John I fell at the feet of an angel to worship him, but the angel said, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, your brethren, who followed the testimony of Jesus Don't worship me, worship God. And he does it again. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. This is a regular angel who showed me these things. But the angel said to me, do not. You notice he almost quotes the first guy. Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren and the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Don't worship me, worship God. And you can see here the answer to the false premise that Joshua asked when he said, are you for us or for our enemies? No. I am with those who heed the words of the book, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is where I am. This is an angel here, but he is submitted to God. You are not the determiner of truth. 
you must come here. If you're here, we're for you. If not, good luck. So now we go back to Joshua. This is now chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. This is Yahweh speaking. I have. He always says, I will. Here it's, I have. It's so certain it hasn't happened yet, but it will. You shall march around the city. He gives him the instructions. And when you look at it from a military standpoint, every instruction given is stupid, especially when you start with a circumcision. But it doesn't matter. That's the point. Are you going to have faith? And we learn in Hebrews, it's faith that took the walls down. But think for a minute about chapters and verses. When were those added to the Scriptures? That's like 1200 A.D., Way after this. So here's the original. Now it came about when Joshua's by Jericho, he lifts up and he sees this man with a sword drawn. And this guy said, no, I'm not with you or not. We've already covered that. The captain of the Lord's host said, remove your sandals, you are on holy ground. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went in, came out. The Lord said to Joshua. So when you put this all together, you realize this captain of the Lord's host is the Lord. He is Yahweh, but he appears as a man. That's all one continuous stream of thought. People get confused because they read chapter 5 and then they move to chapter 6. But it's all one stream of thought. And he accepts worship and clarifies the way in which he should be worshipped. He enforces it. That is no angel. That is no created being. And of course, they take Jericho. And at the end, Joshua captured all these kings and their lands one at a time. It wasn't the army. It was Yahweh Elohim who was fighting for Israel. And we see one last one with the angel of the Lord as we go back to Isaiah with Sennacherib and Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is going to be invaded, but because you have prayed, so it's the prayer of Hezekiah, therefore, thus says the Lord, he will not even shoot an arrow here. What a lousy assault. By the way he came, he will return. He shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. I, personal pronoun, will defend this city. This was from last week. And there the angel. So we see the Lord sent an angel. Well, that's an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, officer, all the best, the cream of the crop. But always read Bible commentary. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because we look at a parallel account. That is not an angel, it's who? The angel of the Lord. So the text will often tell you exactly who it is. So now we're going to get to our last segment. His name. And so he has a bunch of names. We're going to look at this Alpha, this Omega, Jesus Christ, the Creator, but we say, what is his name? And this is interesting. Go to the book of Revelation. It is not the revelation of John. It is the revelation to John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is being revealed. That's what this book is. So if you don't take Revelation serious, you cannot understand Scripture. Because you go through, and we have the advantage to have that to go back to things like Genesis. But here we have the revealing of Jesus Christ. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This is Revelation 19. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Yes, he wages war, but he does it righteously as a sovereign, not bloodthirsty. His eyes are literally a flame of fire, the are in italics, and on his head are many crowns, diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. With it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." 
He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. First time he came to suffer. Second time he comes to judge and rule. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Number 10, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I gave you several verses there that you can put all those together. I just took one passage. So we're going to use that information as we go back to Genesis. And we look back to Jacob. And again, we're not going to study Jacob today. We did that more last week as he wrestles with this angel of the Lord. Messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming, and 400 men, you're in trouble. So Jacob is greatly distressed. Remember, he lived his life running in fear. And he says, oh, Lord, you told me to return from up north and come back down here. You told me to do that. I am unworthy of all that you have given me. I started poor, and now I have wealth. But I fear Esau, and you're the one that said you will bless me. So he's reminding God of his promise. Then Jacob was left alone. He put all his wealth in front of him to block Esau. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw him, saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled. Notice it's a man, it's not winged creature, it's not cherub, it's not seraph. And yes, we see from Hosea, it was the angel of the Lord having this wrestling match. And he said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. But I won't let you go, says Jacob. I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's already cost me a hip, it might cost me my life, but I want your blessing. I can tell you're different. Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. You notice these guys are always wanting to know the name of the angel of the Lord. But he said, why do you ask my name? He doesn't give an answer, but he blesses. Jacob named the place Peniel because he'd seen God face to face, yet his life was preserved. He had seen Elohim, not the full glory, not the full triune God, but he sees a manifestation of him as a name. And he says, tell me your name, this guy in man form that is here wrestling with. Who is this? I can tell it's not a typical regular being, but you won't get it, but I will bless you. You go to Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Right, so doing, some have entertained angels. Now we look at Moses, we look at Jacob, we look at Joshua, Did they realize they were entertaining someone fantastic, someone different? Yes, that was not a regular angel. Sometimes we'll interact with angels and not know it. That's what the Bible tells us. These guys knew this dude was different, and that every time they want to know his name. So we're going to look at the book of Judges. There's one last time with this, well, there's a bunch of times with the angel of the Lord, but this is a fascinating one for his name. Here is Judges. The whole chapter 1 is going to be up here. This is the context for the book. Who shall go up before us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go and his brother Simeon. So Judah and Simeon will go. And where do they go? They take out Kiriath Arba. Who remembers Arba? The greatest man of the Anakim. That is one of the Nephilim. And he had three descendants still here. And they're named several times in Scripture. Seshai, Ahiman, and Telmai. These are giants left over. Caleb leads Judah and Simeon. And they take them out. But that doesn't eradicate them. It's clear down to David and his mighty men. They get them all the way out. But we're looking at Judges, the big picture. Judah and Simeon, they went and took Hebron, Kiriath Arba. But the sons of Benjamin did not. The house of Joseph 
they had success at Bethel. But Joseph is Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh didn't take their whole possession. Ephraim didn't either. They had one success, multiple failures. How about the other guys? Zebulun did not. Asher did not. Naphtali did not. The Amorites forced Dan. They were down in the south right by the giants, right next to Judah. They ski-daddled up north. They left their inheritance. So when God places Samson, he puts him in Philistine-controlled territory supposed to be owned by Dan. He picks a fight. This is Judges 1. Two tribes did okay. Then you have Reuben and Gad. They're on the other side of the Jordan, so they're not taking territory here. Levi doesn't have territory. The only one not mentioned is Issachar. You have two success. Everyone else is an abject failure, not following God. That is understanding judges. Now the angel of the Lord, this key character of all scripture who led the exodus, led the conquest. Now we're starting judges. This is understanding judges. It's the angel of the Lord came up and you can trace where he moves around. He came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I have brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will not break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. Look at the last chapter. There's only two. Only Judah and Simeon did what I've asked you to do. Everyone else shirked it. That is the context to then go into Judges. Therefore, because you have not moved and taken your territory, I have said I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke... All these people wept, and they named it Bokum, which means weeping, and then they sacrificed to the Lord. But you didn't do it when I told you you should, just like at the beginning when they were coming into the Exodus, and the two spies said we should, the ten said we couldn't. They delayed a day, they didn't go when God said, and now they couldn't do it 40 years in the desert. Number 11, the context for the book of Judges is a rebuke by the angel of the Lord. I am going to do the fighting, but you have to be willing to go. You can't sit, and you don't passively obtain an inheritance. That's what our culture teaches. You notice how Satan infiltrates. You go get your inheritance, and that's understanding Hebrews as well. So we're going to look at Samson, just a little bit of him because it's cool, but we're going to get to his birth. So I always love Samson, and that's a cool book to study, but you have to realize where it fits in the context of things of The angel of the Lord rebuking Israel for not going to take their land. He picks a fight by planting Samson in now Philistine-controlled territory that sovereignly belonged to Dan. Fascinating. Now the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, a family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. Here he is. He's going to be here like five, six times. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. Why? For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head. The boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. His appearance was awesome. It was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him his name, and he didn't tell it to me. 
He is a man. He appears as a man, but she, this is different. This is not just a routine encounter and didn't realize it was an angel. This is something special, this guy. He's a man that looks like the angel of God. I don't know what he was. I don't know what his name was. So Manoah entreated the Lord, said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah. Here he is again. The angel of the Lord came again to the woman. You notice with Hagar, he shows up to a woman. Here he goes to the woman. After he's raised, he goes to a woman first. It's kind of interesting how he does that. As she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold the man. Where does that sound from? That's what Pilate said of Jesus. Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man that spoke to the woman? Poor lady doesn't have a name. And he said, I am. Right there, you've got a clue who this is. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, or drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I command. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you. Wait for a while so we can prepare a goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. This is an interesting statement. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Because Manoah didn't know he was the Lord, the angel of the Lord. But he does offer an offering here. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he, the angel of the Lord, performed miracles, wonders, while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended, just like he did after his resurrection. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. They are offering sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, and he himself accepts that. This angel of the Lord accepts it and then ascends up to heaven. That's no routine angel. It's to the Lord, and he is performing miracles in front of them. So get further. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So again, this is just like Jacob. He's asking for the name. What is your name? But I will not give you my name. The angel of the Lord said, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So there's wonderful counselor. That's a related Hebrew word, but it's not the exact same word. The exact same word for Hebrew, for uh, wonderful, is only here in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too high, cannot attain it. In reference there, God has infinite knowledge and understanding. It's the capacity, it's the amount. This is too high. It's not just wonderful, wow, it's neat, but this is ineffable cannot be spoken, inscrutable, cannot be comprehended or understood. Number 12, the angel of the Lord does not give his name because he cannot give it. He does not, the angel of the Lord does not give his name because he cannot give it. Why do I say that? Because it is wonderful. What that means is ineffable. It cannot be spoken. My name cannot be spoken, let alone comprehended. It is inscrutable. My true name is beyond comprehension. It cannot even be spoken. How do you give that name to a mere mortal? He is the Alpha and the Omega. So we asked at the beginning of this little segment, what is his name? We're going to think for a minute. What is that? That's lightning. Uh, Somebody knew that was lightning. Um, Not everybody, but that is lightning. So you can name lightning. Does that mean you have ownership over it? 
God does that with Job. He creates a storm, so he's demonstrating lightning. Where were you and I created the earth? Can you call forth lightning, Job? Eh, nope. And God's just doing it. You can name it. You can talk about charged particles in the atmosphere and separation of charge, and you can think you understand lightning. You do not have ownership. You have a child. Yes, you have stewardship. You do not have ownership. You can name it, but you are a temporary steward. You can't control that child. Don't for a minute think because you name something, you own it. We get that sense of things God ultimately names. He owns everything. If we name him, do we own him? Here's his name. He has a name written. On him is an italic, so it's not even on him. He has a name written. We don't even know where, which no one knows but himself. So I give you that list of names. Here's the real name of Jesus Christ. It is unknowable. 13, it is impossible for any created being to know the real name of Jesus. That's the same dude that told Manoah, why do you ask what is incomprehensible? No created being can speak it, let alone know it. So he gives us multiple names, partial understanding. That really reminds me of what C.S. Lewis is saying. He is, a t- he is not a tame lion. Is he safe? Oh, no, he is not safe. You do not control him. You do not owe him. He does not come at your beck and call. He is not your pet. He self-exists. And he's given us multiple names, but his deepest, truest one we cannot even speak. You might say this, well, I've read Revelation. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him, Jesus Christ will give that guy a new white stone and a new name written on a stone which no one knows Yeah, no one knows that. Yeah, you do. And who gave it to you? The Creator gave you a name. He owns you. You don't give Him a name. You can't understand His real name. This is in contradistinction to ownership. He owns us. We don't own Him. He is the Alpha, the Omega. So in summary, I think it's amazing to think about the angel of the Lord and what the Bible says about him. He calls himself the great I am. He is the leader of the exodus, and he himself is the leader of the conquest. And a big part of that is understanding the Nephilim, which is beyond our scope today. But it makes you realize what this being does throughout, even with Hezekiah, that's after the conquest. And then we look at his name. He has multiple names. But the deepest, truest, full thing is beyond human comprehension. So hopefully that gives us some things to think about here. Um, Any questions before we roll and get out of here? That's kind of a lot of stuff. You got one, Matt. Go ahead. Yeah, there's several things of there, and affliction is the word. So the question is, how do you get the 400 years, the 430 years of in the, the slavery in Egypt? And that's a very interesting question. But it, I, to make the, the math work, because it, it also tells of 430 years to the day. And so it goes back to Ishmael afflicting Isaac is where it starts. And then you have various things, and then they're gonna, there's the four generations in there. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where the fourth generation comes from, but you start the clock with Ishmael afflicting Isaac, and that's where you get the 430. And then there's times where they're in Egypt, but they're welcome there when Pharaoh knew Joseph. But then the next king didn't like them. So there's a lot of complex things trying to get that all fig- ferreted out. But we'd better pray and get out of here because we're late. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you for revealing sufficient information in your word. Um, 
but never enough for us to have mastery over you, because that is so impossible. Help us to be humble as we read your word and realize you are the sovereign king, and you direct everything. Help us to want to station ourselves under you and not standing alone. In Jesus' name, amen.